This week's podcast brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, the leader in wetlands conservation going all the way back to 1937. Think about that. That's a lot of history of conserving waterfowl habitat and the uh, ducks and geese that we all are so passionate about. Uh, I'm a proud member and I also serve on the Dallas DU committee. Uh, I encourage you to get plugged in with your local Ducks Unlimited chapter uh, and, and join this great group of folks who are passionate about duck hunting and waterfowl conservation. For more info, head over to ducks.org. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born and more, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists. Think about that. Targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into episode 680 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks for being here today. That's uh, our good buddy William Clark Green. Leave me alone kicking things off for us. It's a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for dropping by today. We've got a good one lined up for you, something uh, that deviates from the traditional script just a little bit, but one that I think will be certainly educational and interesting, to say the least. I'll tell you all about it momentarily. First, though, what are you getting into in the great outdoors? I always say June and July are about the dullest time periods, the two months with the least amount of action when it comes to hunting. Fishing is another story. Snapper season actually just kicked off along the Texas coast in federal waters, so there's always that, uh, and we'll be heading down to the coast a couple times this summer. Certainly, we'll be doing some bay fishing for redfish and trout, uh, but as far as hunting goes, man, there's just not a lot going on. I mean, feral hog season, open 365, 24-7. Calling predators, though, it's so damn hot. They're, they're not as responsive, and everything is overgrown and thick. There's ticks everywhere. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to talk you out of it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'll be going to the deer lease, I think two weekends from now to, uh, fill feeders, put out some new cameras and certainly try to get on some pigs and no coyote ever gets a pass. But, uh, yeah, it's really, it's kind of more about fishing right now. And with that in mind, uh, that's the direction we're going to head with today's show. So you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And so joining us for the duration of today's show is award-winning 
author Paul Greenberg. Uh, I've read his book, Four Fish. It's a New York Times bestseller. He's got uh, some more recent works as well. We might get into uh, some of those, like The Climate Diet. I don't know if we'll agree on everything there. He does hail from New York City, the Big Apple. So a lot of our ideologies might vary based off of the fact that I'm a good old boy from Texas and uh, he's a New York City slicker. But he is an outdoorsman. I'm not going to uh, say that he's that we aren't very much alike at the same time because we certainly are. He loves fishing and uh, is very concerned with this planet because we only get one, right? So we need to take care of it. And in doing so, these renewable resources, which is what Four Fish is about, uh, will also benefit. And you and I will benefit, most importantly. So uh, I'm excited about our conversation with Paul Greenberg today. It's going to be a good one. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. And I was a little bit surprised by Paul's take on catch and release. I think you will be as well. And with that in mind, let's give away something that will help you fillet that fish once you catch it, whether that's a, a crappie, a trout, a bass, a redfish, whatever, salmon, if you're up north. Uh, let's give away a Havilon Barracuda fillet knife. Just uh, text in the word Barracuda, if you can spell it, to Lone Star. Outdoorshow at gmail.com, and you are entered into this week's Havilon Barracuda Filet Knife Giveaway. Let's knock out a quick break. Coming up next, renowned author Paul Greenberg joins us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Kicking ass is getting old. Taking names takes its toll. On a worn out, busted, beat up soul like mine. Cable here for Secure It Gun Storage, the gun storage system that caters to your specific needs. Lightweight safes that allow you to customize the interior to fit your firearm collection. I would know, I've got four of them in my house. It's decentralized storage that keeps me organized and never more than arm's length away from a firearm. The storage system keeps my guns and optics from ever touching or rubbing against each other as well. To check out their full lineup of safes and storage systems, just head over to secureitgunstorage.com and you can thank me later. It's that time of the year where you might want to try to kick off a new year with a fitness journey. Cryo and More has all your holistic healing needs with cold therapy, heat therapy, and pressure therapy, which shortcuts the time you have to spend recovering from your workout or minimize the muscle soreness you feel from physical activity. Cryo Skin is a body hack that speeds up the death cycle of the fat cells using non-invasive technology that uses heat and cold to eliminate fat cells. Your greatest wealth is your health. Visit cryoandmore.com or head over to the location off of Virginia Parkway in McKinney. Well, me, I'm doing fine with my 30-pound test line. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep the sand out of my beard. Well, the redfish seem happy here like they ain't got a thing to fear. Washing down with that's called beer, they don't seem to mind. That's Trey Clark's Waste Some Time. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Uh, we're all set to check in with author Paul Greenberg. I've read his book, Four Fish. It's a damn good one. And uh, we're going to get into that and much more momentarily. This segment, though, brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants and Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. And with that being said, let's bring him on right now, joining us from New York City. 
the Big Apple. It's my pleasure to welcome Paul Greenberg to the show. Oh, great to be here. My pleasure. Uh, so first of all, where are you based out of? I am literally at Ground Zero in Manhattan, um, stone's throw from where the World Trade Center stood and is and is rising as we speak. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, I spent a little bit of time in in the uh, Big Apple. My wife worked there for three years while we were dating. So oh, she's yeah, from yeah. here, but she when she started her career, she went up there to to uh, work as a nurse, and she just she had traveled to New York and and loved it and. I couldn't personally live there, but uh, she she <laughs> well, had a blast, and I enjoyed my time visiting there. Well, you know, people would be surprised, but there's actually quite good fishing literally at my doorstep. And my um, my partner and I, we she and I take a walk usually in the evenings in the summer times. And literally last week, uh, I was down walking past the battery in sight of the Statue of Liberty, and saw one slot limit striped bass come up, about you know thirty inches, and oh. then the, the guy at the bulkhead had something on that I think was probably a 40 or a 50 pounder and it was just taken line and there was no getting this thing out of the wreck book <laughs> that is the bottom of the New York bite. So uh -huh. um, there's big fish around here. And so if you ever come back, uh, I'll certainly show you around. Yeah. That's one thing I did not do while I was in New York was go fishing. Probably should have. Yeah. Um, so you're an award-winning food and uh, environmental author specializing in in all things coming out of water the sea um i actually have read the new york times bestseller four fish and mm -hmm. i think this was published in 2010 yep. great read that explores the four most common fish species the world relies on uh, as far as food sources are concerned uh, salmon tuna bass and cod and i could uh i really don't care about the cod so much but the other three I eat pretty, pretty frequently. Um, yeah. And, you know, the book explores, it's like, we have this booming human population. We have these, if we treat them respectfully, you know, renewable resources. Um, and, and it's even, you know, the, they're described as the last wild food. So why, uh, why those four species? And is there, are there other ones that are like in the same realm as far as ones that we depend on as humans? Yeah. Well, you know, it was a little bit of um, an, an educated guess as to how best to... What I wanted to do was to tell the story of the ocean. Uh -huh. I wanted to tell the story of the domestication of the ocean because, you know, 100 years ago, everything we ate from the sea was wild. And now we've just recently crossed the threshold where half of it is coming from farms. Mm -hmm. So when I was looking for my four, four creatures... I was looking for ones that were really right in the crosshairs of that wild versus farmed uh, debate. And, you know, so it's funny because this book has actually been translated into eight or nine different languages and in different countries, different people are like, well, why didn't you include smelt? Or <laughs> so it's very culturally specific mm -hmm. what constitutes as your sort of main four fish. But my reason was that when you look at the land, for example, if you go back 20, 30,000 years and look at the fire pits of Neolithic humans, you know, you'll see badger, skunk, woodcock, or, you know, all these different kinds of animals in, in the fire pit. But when you telescope to the age of model, modern animal husbandry, it's really four, right? Like uh, cows, pigs, um, goats, and sheep. And then if you look at all the birds that are out there that we used to eat, it's pretty much for like chickens, turkeys, 
ducks and geese. Mm -hmm. So my point in this book was that we are heading exactly to the same place as we did with land food, with seafood. And so we're kind of trying to find the four or five or six that work best for us. Um, in the case of the four fish that I chose, it's actually not species. It's really kind of what I call in the book flesh archetypes, right? right. So like you go into a seafood restaurant, right? You kind of want something sort of pink and succulent that might be broiled and that's your salmon. You might want something sort of steaky or have a sushi and that would be your tuna. You might want a whole fish on your plate and that would be the thing that usually gets categorized as bass. And then you might want something sort of deep fried that mm -hmm. is in the cod category. So I really kind of worked from where the consumer was coming from. Like, what are the flesh archetypes you want to see? Mm -hmm. Let's go with what you know, what you eat, and let's let me walk you back and have you understand why those particular fish are on your plate. Okay. Well, and it's all, I mean, also, we need to just make note that a lot of those have subspecies. Like, you yes. tuna has how many? 23, 24, I think. Yeah, I'm in the same way. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know about cod. Um, and they're not actually they're not actually subspecies. Technically, we're talking families and genuses. So if we're talking right, from a right, right, right. Point, yeah. point of view, you know, each of the salmon that we know are a separate species. Right. Um, so I mislabeled that. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's okay. I mean, yeah. technically, the book should have been for fishes because when you have <laughs> multiple kinds of fish, the plural is really used, um, or at least that that form of the plural is used. So a lot a lot of times when I speak at um, I talk a lot at, you know, marine science uh, universities, and and I'm always introduced as Paul Greenberg, the author of Four Fishes. And I'm like, mm. that's technically right, but it doesn't roll all of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I know with certainly salmon, like mm -hmm. I live in Texas, I can go to the grocery yeah. store and I can pay top dollar for wild-caught salmon, or yep. I can get farm-raised salmon. Yep. I don't think there's any farm raised tuna yet. I don't know. Not bluefin anyway, which is what demands the highest dollar, you know. Uh, well, you'd be surprised. I mean, just to back up, I mean, tuna is ranched. A lot of it is ranched. So they'll catch okay. them at a smaller uh, size and then they will net pen them and feed them up and bring them up to weight. Kind of like, you know, with a beef cattle, you'll mm -hmm. have a, a calf that gets put into pasture and, and fed. Anyway, carry on. So you said cod. Yeah. So I didn't even know that about tuna. Uh, yeah. And then when I think about, bass we're talking about sea bass we're not we're not talking about largemouth bass um yeah. smallmouth well, bass but we're talking about sea bass which where i live i can go up to lake texoma 40 minutes away and catch the same exact species in fresh water because we've stocked this fish so i know they're probably farm raised if they're going to survive in fresh water why wouldn't we i mean it seems like if you connect the dots there but if i if i really want to pay top dollar, I can get the one that says Chilean sea bass, wild cod. <laughs> well, and again, again, you know, names are tricky. And there's a whole part of four fish where I go into how names of fish are derived. Mm -hmm. um, when I chose bass, I knowingly chose a name that, you know, there are market names, and then there are taxonomic names. And the thing is, is that when you say to an American bass, or when you say to an American comma bass, mm -hmm. um, you um, envision a certain kind of streamlined, kind of pleasantly shaped fish. That's I think of a largemouth bass, personally. You, think, you may think of a largemouth bass. And we I call might... them striper. The, the bass that actually come from the ocean, we call striper down here, which yeah. technically they're called a rockfish, I think is what most people call them. Well, we call them striped bass, right? And, okay. uh, and you know, I know in the Texas coast you have uh, redfish, which play, mm -hmm. other places are called channel bass. 
So my point is, is that we tend to throw the word bass around a lot, regardless of taxonomic origin. Yeah. Chilean sea bass, which you mentioned, is actually, it's so distant from what we call bass uh, taxonomically, it's actually of a different order. So, right, so kingdom, phylum, order, um, and so on down the line, class. Mm -hmm. and so, so it's really way up there, different. It's a notathenid, has nothing to do evolutionary. I always say that, you know, um, when I do this, my four fish talk, uh, that uh, I, sh I show a Chilean sea bass and an American striped bass, and then I, I show a lemur and my son, Luke Greenberg. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's about the taxonomic relationship. So in any case, what, what I, what, I kind of trickily use the word bass because what happens quite often in um, wild fishery systems is that we overexploit something, we wipe it out, and then we look for something else that's similar to replace it. So in the case of the Chilean sea bass, before there was Chilean sea bass ever on our plates, and there was no Chilean sea bass in our plates before, say, 1979 about, mm -hmm. um, probably the most common fish that was on the plates of Californians was California white sea bass, which, again, in our kooky kooky bass conversation, if you look at the profile as a fisherman, if you were to look at a California white sea bass, you would see basically a big sea trout. Right. Like um, it's a, it's a croaker. It's in that same sort of uh -huh. family. Anyway, all by way of saying the California white sea bass was overfished in the 70s and 80s. And then people were, and it was the time when remember when everyone got into hibachi grilling, you know, yeah. like and suddenly this thing. So they were like, well, what the frick are we going to put on our hibachis if there's no white California white sea bass? And it was at that time that a California entrepreneur started poking around Chile and discovered this Chilean sea bass, which by and large people didn't like in Chile because it's too, it's just not the right consistency for what they like to eat. And then they started importing it, started coming into California. And then it made the leap to the East Coast actually through the movie Jurassic Park. Have you, if I recall, there's a moment in Jurassic Park, remember when uh, Dr. Hammond, they dropped the cow down to the velociraptors and it tears it to shreds oh, yeah. and have a horrifying scene. And then Dr. Hammond says, our chef Alejandro has prepared a delicious meal for us. I believe a Chilean sea bass. Uh -huh. And that's the first time that most people outside of the West Coast, like, Chilean sea bass, what's that? I want to eat uh. that. That was in a movie. And so, you know, there's different narratives that, but I, I do like to say that that um, Steven Spielberg effectively spread the Chilean uh. sea bass around the country. So, um, so are the bass that we find now, in our yeah. restaurants and and uh, grocery stores, are those striped bass like off of it, our? Well, it depends. I mean, one of the, the the reason I decided to use bass for the for this chapter, the there is a bass that appeared in markets about maybe 15, 20 years ago, and it's actually a European sea bass. It's of the same genus as the American striped bass. But it, Moroni is the genus, um, but it comes originally from the Atlantic, the, the European Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And they kind of cracked the code on how to farm that in the 70s and 80s. And once they figured that out, it started showing up in restaurants everywhere. Curiously, um, how old are you, Cable? I'm 41. 41. So you're you know a bit younger than I. Jurassic Park was like one of the first real violent movies I was allowed to watch. <laughs> Lucky you. They broke you right in. Um, but... You know, there. Um, so I'm old enough to remember a time when the size limit on striped bass was maybe like 15 inches, or maybe there was no size limit at all. Uh -huh. And when you think about it, you got a plate, right? It's like 
you know, 18 inches across, you want about a 15 inch fish on that plate, right? So those juveniles were regularly caught and served in restaurants, at least in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Once the striped bass got depleted, that particular kind of fish disappeared. And that's where aquaculture comes in because aquaculture, fish farming, they like a fish that's on the small side because you can get that in a year or two. Whereas if you want to grow a big old striped bass, that's going to take you five, six, seven, eight years, right. which is very efficient from a farming perspective. So anyway, so going back to your question, what are we seeing in the supermarket? Well, it really depends on how your supermarket is labeling stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Chances are, if you're seeing a whole fish, it's probably that farmed Atlantic uh, um, European sea bass. Um, you might see, you know, like in your area, you might see black sea bass, which is a, you know, a reef, a wreckfish. Um, again, different genus than all the other bass that we've been talking about. But what you won't find, unless it's farmed, you will not find a small striped bass anymore because um, I believe most coastal states is 28 inches to keep them. Uh -huh. Okay. But do we farm our striped bass here? I mean, I we know do. Texas Parks and Wildlife is raising them and releasing them in extra yeah. or across my state. Yeah, and that's and, and that's a hatchery relationship. And and actually, hatcheries were probably the first attempt at aquaculture that we had. You know, in the 19th century, people got really excited about rainbow trout and put them everywhere because they turned out to be rather easy to 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 culture in captivity. And and actually, it's to the point where rainbow trout are kind of an invasive species in the East um, now. But yeah, striped bass were domesticated also in the 80s. We do see farm striped bass. Um, they're actually a hybrid striped bass. They're a hybrid between a white bass and a, and a striped bass. Um, and uh, We release those too. <laughs> yeah, we release those too. Um, but there are, particularly in the South and the Mid-Atlantic, there are a few places that actually farm them inland. Um, I believe North Carolina is a big producer of commercially grown farmed striped bass. Okay. Um, you won't see too much wild striped bass in supermarkets. You might see them more in a fish market. Um, uh, they're very, very highly regulated. And actually, sort of interesting to your, you know, to your listeners. I don't know if you get into this a lot with your guests and with your listeners, but I think there's this idea that the commercial guys are the enemy. Like the sport, the sports and rec guys, we're not doing anything that's really harming fish. It's really those big commercial guys. But in point of fact, if you look in the Northeast. Um, the commercial take of striped bass is like 10 or 20% of the total take. The rest of it is recreational. And um, even though we're only allowed a couple of fish per person, actually down to one fish per person, it's the rec guys who are taking the vast majority of the fish. And then, of course, there's all this catch and release. And with a up to a 40% mortality of released fish, you know, do the numbers and you see who's really doing the damage. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, the commercial guys always seem to get a bad rap. And, you know, in Texas with the... The snapper situation off of our coast, I think that's probably more warranted, but it seems like with uh, striped bass, rockfish, whatever you want to call them, you've made it clear that it's the recreational guys that are using up the majority of that resource. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and continue the conversation with Paul Greenberg. That segment brought to you by Stealth Cam and the brand spanking new Deceptor cellular camera. You can find the Deceptor and their entire lineup of cellular cameras at StealthCam.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. 
It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Time to tell you about Protect Products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, Energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, They don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Hey, this is Chris Knight, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Why do I do the things I do? Was I born this way? Am I self-made fool? I shoot the light and I curse the dark. Cable Smith, welcoming each and every one of you back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. We've still got author Paul Greenberg here with us, and we'll get back into that conversation momentarily. This segment, though, brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee and my friends over at Vortex Optics, who just this week released the Triumph HD. 10 by 42 binos, perfect for the truck or for that youth hunter in your life. And get this, they come in at only $99. Plus, even better than that, you can save 10% off the Triumph HD 10 by 42 or uh, anything that Vortex makes for that matter when you shop at eurooptics.com and check out with that code LONESTAR10. That's right. Well, let's get back into it with author Paul Greenberg. You know where we left off, we had discussed striped bass and how recreational fishermen actually make up the majority of the take uh, from striped bass, certainly on the, the East Coast. And this was before I started fishing on the coast, I, and I would have been a young boy anyway, but I think it was the, I think it was in the 80s when Texas yeah. was like, man, where did all of our redfish go? And we were fishing mm-hmm. them commercially. Yeah. And so we stopped that, and now yeah. there is no, at, at all, uh, commercial industry for redfish now you can, there are farm raised ones like um but people will say or restaurants will say you know redfish on the half shell or blackened redfish well black and redfish. you damn well know that it's farm raised or it's black drum and not redfish at all that's right and you know the black and redfish story is um a pretty interesting story like that was a a, a um a recipe that was invented by a new orleans chef and people went berserko for wild redfish. And that's why you had such a huge depletion event in the 80s. Um, But, you know, there are a couple of things going on with redfish that make it an exception. First of all, where is all that farmed redfish coming from? A lot of it is from China. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. those, you know, China got a hold of spawning stock and they're growing them in China and sending them back to us. And this happens with a lot of things with bay scallops, all these different kinds of species. But, you know, there, it's not always doom and gloom when it comes to fisheries management. And redfish is actually a shining example of, of better management, but not just better commercial management, better recreational management. Um, pretty sure Texas has, like in the Carolinas, has a slot limit 
We do, on, yeah. On red fish. So basically you can't keep a fish smaller than a certain size and you can't keep a fish bigger than a different size. You, I think we're well, we're allowed to keep one. Your yeah. your license even comes with a with a tag. And you can get it, exactly. you can request yeah, another sure. one, right? But but the big ones, like take your picture and take your measurements if you want to get a replica made, whatever. The big ones, they're they're a little wormy for me. Like I and they don't taste as good. So I released those and they're fun. Absolutely. They're so fun to catch, but yeah, I don't have any use for, for eating one of those. I'd rather a nice one that, like you said, will fit on the plate. Mm, yeah. Okay. Give me that one. Yeah. And, and, but you know, here we have a case of like human evolution, right? Like you're 15 years younger than I, somebody from my generation is still obsessed with the idea of bringing home the big trophy and stringing it up and have everyone praise them for catching such a big fish. Mm. But an evolution took place you know, precisely because of these kind of PTSD moments that happened with just complete collapse of striped bass, complete collapse of redfish, so that you, somebody of your age and younger, looks at a big uh, redfish and doesn't think trophy, they think spawner, right? It's like, and, and you know, there's a, there's a funny term. Breeders in, ain't eaters. Breeders and eaters, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, you know, there's a funny term that even marine scientists use, which is called a boff, which stands for a big old fat female fish. And a boff is what you want in your spawning stock because the larger the fish, more eggs they produce. And also there's been some studies that show the bigger fish actually have um, better survival rates of their young. Mm. So we, we certainly want to keep those big fish in the water. And, you know, we just, believe it or not, New York, only recently imposed a slot limit on striped bass just recently. And it was crazy. It's, it was, I want to say maybe it's two, three years ago, but I was out fishing off of Montauk um, for striped bass and every fish we hooked was in the 40 to 50 pound class. And just like, I got spooled by one fish that I was like, wow. well, there goes my IGFA record. But I mean, it's nice to see all those big fish and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, to, to rebuild those smaller fish sucks because right now we're in a crisis mode with the amount of smaller striped bass that we have. And we need a couple of good younger year classes to get oh. back on track. How does the idea, and I, I think, and going back in history, I think it starts with the trout fishermen, the, the fly fishermen, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then the bass fishermen, and I'm talking about freshwater bass fishermen mm -hmm. start doing this catch and release, catch and release. Mm -hmm. And and so that's separate from overfishing, com, you know, commercially or recreationally, right? Yeah. When I think of a big bass, like, and I'll say it all day until I'm blue in the face, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, they taste great. But we have now this, I mean, when you think about fishing in Texas, some people might think of redfish. I'd say the majority of Texans think about largemouth bass. Yeah. That's what, you know, we like bass and bucks here. And, uh <laughs> And the, I mean, Texas Parks and Wildlife, yes, they've invested millions and millions of dollars in redfish and trout on the coast. They've yep. invested a lot more in largemouth bass. And, you know, you catch a 13 pounder, they will come to you wherever you are in the state, take it back to the fish hatchery and spawn it there. And then they will take the, that fry <laughs> the next year and they'll go release it in X Lake, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder where, if it, if it, because I think they're, each mindset, like you might being, you know, primarily a saltwater fisherman think, well, it's, it's because of overfishing and me growing up in North Texas, I'm like, well, we catch and release because, you know, we want the big ones to, to breed and who wants, and also 
who wants to eat a bass anyway? Like, <laughs> but either, yeah. however we got there, the idea is we should catch and release the big ones. Right. And trout. Oh gosh. Fly fishermen. They don't, most of them are too uppity to keep anything. It's all catch yeah. and release. I'm, I'm like, no, that, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to keep pull a stringer, but I want to take one home once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that. Um, where it comes from, where catch and release comes from. It's hard to say. Uh, I did one of my very first fish articles I did years ago for the Boston Globe um, was about bluefish and striped bass. It was sort of about the idea that whenever two fish occupy the same sort of angler niche, one is the good guy and one's the bad guy. Like, get this thing off my hook. I want the other one. And as I looked into the, the, the backstory of that, it turned out that before striped bass was the good guy and bluefish were the bad guy, it was actually Atlantic salmon that were the good guy in New England and striped bass were the bad guy. So mm. we had, you know, vibrant runs of Atlantic salmon uh, up in up Connecticut coast through Maine. And those and then striped bass kind of got in the way. And um, I think there's something that happens when something gets depleted to a certain point where you still want to catch it, but you can't bear killing it. And so that mindset starts to come into play. And that was very much the mindset was with Atlantic salmon while we still had them. Now with striped bass being sort of taking the place of the Atlantic salmon, those kind of attitudes, sort of salmon-like attitudes frequently are applied to striped bass. And so you have anglers often releasing striped bass. Um, I certainly, it's also very class conscious or cl class related, um, you know, being who I am and where I live. I'm often asked to kind of, you know, host dinners and stuff for anglers clubs and stuff like that. The very wealthy do not keep fish. Right. You know I mean, it's almost as if to show, I don't need this fish. I mean, you know, I'm beyond all that. Um, me personally, I'm not fabulously wealthy, but um, I, you know, make a middle class income. I do like to keep fish. And there's part of me is also, so I teach at New York University, I teach in this program called Animal Studies. And so inevitably, I got kind of dragged into the do fish feel pain debate which I know is very controversial among angl amongst anglers, but suffice to say, I've read enough of the literature to feel that. Yes. I'm going to, so I'm going to say something controversial. Yeah. It has never crossed my mind. And when I go <laughs> fishing tomorrow after this conversation, it's not going to cross my mind. Am Listen, I beating the fish up? No, I'm not, but I don't care if, if the fish is hooked and, Oh, I'm sorry. You guys, yeah. no, I don't care. I bought my fishing license. You know what that does pay for more fish. Get over yeah. it. So, so again, like, I'm much closer to you in terms of how I was raised and how I catch fish, mm -hmm. but I also spend some time with scientists and, you know, have talked in depth with people who've actually done, there's a really good book called um, What a Fish Knows, uh -huh. worth reading just to test your own intellect, you know, and to see sure. how much you really believe it. There's no reason to believe that a fish doesn't suffer like any other creature. Um, that said, I also believe that, you know, we were, we came into this world as hunters. And so, to hunt and kill something, that sounds legit to me. Right. But here, here's where I get fouled up in the catch and release debate. If I'm going out to catch something, to eat it, that seems legit. Mm -hmm. But to go out and torture it, I <laughs> increasingly I have a problem with it. And you know, my friend Carl Safina, who's a really great fisherman, good writer, he he, he coined the frames phrase kill and go home rather than catch and release. And there is something, you know, if you probe your own ethics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and you say, I want fish for my plate. Go kill 
go home. But then to like, you know what I mean? Catch release, catch release, catch release all day. I don't know. I mean, I don't, it's not worth getting into a whole, you know, back and forth. It's about interesting it, but... to think about, you know, yeah. and we come from different regions. You're obviously in a much more left-wing uh, place that probably has far more animal rights activity, act activists. Uh, yeah. Now, trust me, they're here too. Uh, and yeah, yeah. It seems like more are moving in all the time. But from like yeah. just from a, a general mindset of the populace, it would be like that would probably be like, oh, that's mean to hook a fish and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they feel pain and yada 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 whatever. Catch and kill, that's interesting though. But then of course you can't catch and kill every one of them, nor would you, you want to. Well, a lot of them are, it's illegal to do because they're too small or they're too big or it's the you know wrong season or if it's a red snapper out you know out in, where I live out of season. That's right. So. But that's the go home part. And that's what anglers always have a hard time doing. I mean, again, I'm older, old enough, older than you to remember a mm -hmm. time when certain fish, there were no limits at all. And, yeah. you know, you guys have head boats, right? Like open boats out of tex uh, coastal Texas where you pay a fare and go out fishing for the day. Oh, yeah. I, I take the kids every summer. We're going to go yeah. out of Galveston in July. Yeah, me too. And, um, you know, there were days, right? Like we go out for bluefish, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody, any fish eating person knows that with bluefish, you're going to eat them that day or you're going to smoke them or you're going to end up feeding your cat. Right. And, you know, they just don't have a lot of shelf life. Maybe maybe three days in the fridge you can go. But, you know, I would go out in these bluefish boats, no limit, right? People would literally come with a, gar a garbage can, um, no ice in the garbage can, just, oh you know, just, just freaking <laughs> fill up the garbage can with bluefish. And I'd be like, so what are you going to do with all those bluefish? He's like, I don't know. Take them to the dump. You know, so like what, <sighs> you know, and this is not that long ago, you know, and it yeah. really is kind of the thing. And so that's, that's, you're 15 years older than me. And I have never, I've never experienced or in my wildest dreams would have thought, uh, you know, yeah. I see something like that. Yeah, it, it, it definitely happened. And even 10, blue, like now the limit, I think, in New York is is we're down to two blues a day, maybe mm -hmm. three. But as recently as like five years ago, it was 10. Now, tell me, are you like how many people in your family? Like five. Four or five? Yeah. yeah. So like, are you in a position to eat through 10 bluefish? No. no. Exactly. We so, did the same thing. So and it was it was such a hotly contested topic at the time. And this is six seven years ago yeah and they so we are our, our uh sea trout limit we call them specs down here yeah yep, yep. uh was 10 yeah throughout most of the coast and they're like oh we're gonna try a five fish limit in in this stretch now i'm pretty sure it's statewide there might be one area where you can still catch 10 but yeah. who needs 10 trout like you, you know oh. what happens and people don't want to admit it but like you probably eat three or four your family the first day and then it goes in the freezer and then like yeah. Six months later, you're putting in your whitetail that you shot. And you're like, oh, there's that trout. Oh, it's freezer burn. Damn it. That's right. And somehow, and you know, the at the time, right, that you caught the sea trout, if you picked it up out of the water and took it home and threw it in the garbage, you would feel deep suffering, oh, right? Yeah. But but when you go to put that whitetail in there and you find this crusty old, you know, freezer burn thing at the bottom of your freezer, you're like, yeah. It, it, it becomes inanimate, you know, yeah. so you don't, it does, it doesn't affect you emotionally. So I guess going back to our question and our debate, it's like what happens and it's like, it is a 
biological evolutionary thing. When you hit the fish, right? Because we've all had plenty of days of catching nothing, right? Mm -hmm. On those rare days where it's just berserk, right? Where you go, where you go catching instead of fishing. Where you go catching (laughs) instead of fishing. It's really hard to turn yourself off. You know what I mean? It's like it's like there's something that it's kind of like you know how they say about fat and sugar. Like people can't stop overeating Mm -hmm. fat and sugar because in the wild it's not really that that's a, a rare thing to come across. It's the same things like, oh my God, so much abundance. I have to get all of this. You know, some Neolithic part of our brain mm. is saying, let's smoke all this and put it up for the winter because we don't know what's going to be around in January. And and that requires a little bit of like the, the thinking modern human to say, stop. And in a way, catch and release is like a middle ground, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's stopping, but it's not stopping. Mm. So I guess I would, you know, and, and listen, if you caught, if you, if you and I went out fishing and the fishing was amazing and we, you said, let's switch over to catch and release. And it was a beautiful day. I'd have a really hard time stopping, but yeah. I do think it's worth putting out there. Kill and go home. Huh? Kill and go home. I've never, I've never heard it put that way. Uh, interesting, uh, as is this entire discussion. Let's take a break. We'll come back and uh, expand on that train of thought. Uh, that segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. You can find their entire lineup of deer feeders, blinds, and backyard barbecue pits and accessories right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com looking for a thermal hog hunt near dfw then three curl outfitters has you covered offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of dallas guide scout daily to put you on the bacon using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders crop fields and river bottoms you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees visit www.3curl.com also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940 in the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Finger on the trigger, the late great Brandon Jenkins bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thanks for dropping by. 
We're still visiting with uh, fishing and environmental author Paul Greenberg. We'll get back into that discussion in just a sec. This segment brought to you by NUMA Outdoors. Here's the awesome thing about NUMA. They guarantee all of their hunting apparel for life. If you're like me, you probably are harder on your hunting clothing than anything else. So I don't know how they can guarantee it for life, but they do. I haven't had anything uh, fall apart. I don't think I will. But if it did, they'd replace it for free. You can find their entire lineup of hunting apparel at NumaOutdoors.com. Well, picking it back up with Paul Greenberg, you know, Paul, you had brought this concept to the table. Kill and go home. Pretty foreign, right? I think to most people listening. Um, I, I find it interesting, but I don't know if it's applicable in every situation. I mean, this is what comes to my mind. I mean, there's stretches of trout rivers where you can't even keep a fish and you have to use a barbless hook. And so, but you know, what's, what's funding that is fishing. So it's like, it's like this weird, yes, yes. this weird relationship, like catch and release is keeping that stretch of the river. Yes, yes, that's true. And, you know, and and certainly I'm, you know, I know the whole literature about duck hunters, you know, the amount of wetland that duck hunters have preserved through Ducks Unlimited. Mm. You know, it's, I definitely, listen, I think there is a very clear place in society for sports people, sportsmen and women to be out hunting and fishing. I support that. It's just, you know, as again, my friend Carl says, use nature, but don't use it up. Right. Right. So, so where does, where does, um, where does cod fall into this? Cause I already told you, well, let me rank them. I'm going to say tuna would be my favorite. If I was going to a sushi restaurant and my goodness, yeah. I love sushi. I'm looking mm-hmm. for Maguro, like red fatty tuna. I don't care if you put it on rice or not. I just want it in my mouth and I want a lot of it. That's my favorite. I yes, would say salmon. Yeah. Would say. Uh, I don't know what kind of bass they're giving me when I order sashimi. Yeah. It just says sea bass. I'm like, all right, I'll have that too. You yeah. tell me it could be one of 10 different eight, species. You know? Eight taxonomic families get their name bass. Yeah. I like, I find that very flavorful. What And the Chilean sea bass too, delicious striper, yeah. which I get here in te- Texoma. I love it. Um, salmon's probably my third favorite. I'm not. I my wife really likes a broiled salmon, or you know, on a cedar plank or whatever. So we cook it, but not my favorite. Um, I I will eat it. I'd rather eat the raw salmon personally. Yeah. Sushi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cod. I don't. I don't eat a lot of fried fish. If I do, it's probably crappie that I caught here locally. Um, yeah. When I was a kid. We'd go to the cafeteria. I don't think cafeterias are really even a thing anymore, but we would go to, to Wyatt's Cafeteria after church on Sunday, and I would get the fried fish plate. And I guarantee you it was cod. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. Does, or do they, first of all, do they farm raise cod? And secondly, is, and like maybe cod is more, I mean, hell, London's like fish and chips. Oh my gosh, you got to get the fish and chips. Maybe yeah. other, other cultures eat a lot more fried fish. Maybe, more people than I think of in America eat fried fish. I don't know. Um, well, I always think of cod as the first industrial fish. And long before it was fried, it was dried and salted as bacalao. So, you know, there's... That sounds a, like a Norwegian thing, isn't it? Uh, Scan- Scandinavian? It actually began with the Basque. And, you know, if you ever read... Have you ever read Mark Karlansky's book, Cod? It's no. a great read. Really worth it. But he makes the argument that it was most likely the Basque that discovered America in the ninth century... And it was mostly because they were out on a fishing trip and they huh. were getting to Newfoundland and so forth. Um, so cod have a very low fat content, so it allows you to dry them 
pretty efficiently, dry and salt them. And they're basically, you can stack them like cordwood. So for much of Europe, especially uh, Catholic Europe that, you know, required fish on Friday, um, salt cod was the original fast food. Huh. Cod are big schooling fish. You know, historically, they were massive, massive numbers. The discovery of the Grand Banks and George's Bank off of Massachusetts, those were huge, huge boon days. And, you know, famously, I think there's a, you know, a golden cod on a pedestal above the Massachusetts State House. So literally, that economy was built on the back of cod. Once salt cod threw out a favor, a guy named Clarence Birdseye figured out how to flash freeze or how to freeze cod. And again, because it has low fat content, the lower your fat content, the easier you are to freeze and right. preserve in general. So it became um, the fish stick. It became the filet of fish sandwich. It became all these sort of industrial I products. ate the crap out of Long John Silver's too. I don't know if you ever there had you that. Go. Yeah. There you go. Kid. Yeah. But, you know, because we've fished, we've overfished the Grand Banks, we've overfished these major stocks of cod, other fish, just like I mentioned, other fish that we call bass slotted their way in, we've moved other fish into the cod culinary niche. So is there still a fishery in New England for cod? It, very little. Um, and I think of like the deadliest catch guys would be cod fishing when they weren't crab fishing. If you if you remember the show. Yeah, in Alaska, you know, then that, they, it's, they call that actually true cod because it is um, they're meant cod is one of those names that bounces around a lot of species. But there mm -hmm. is a Pacific cod that's quite close to Gattis Maria, which is the Atlantic cod. Most of the cod, if you're eating a, an actual cod nowadays, it's either true cod from Alaska or there's actually quite healthy populations um, uh, in the Barents Sea. Um, one of the effects of warming oceans is that the Barents, which used to be sort of frozen over largely, is now largely accessible to commercial fishing. Mm. So you have large populations of cod there. But going back to the sort of species swap, if you look at a filet of fish sandwich today, it ain't cod most of the time. Most of the time it's walleye pollock, which is, a, again, a related species, but specific to Alaska and Russia in the Northern Pacific, different creature altogether. And then if you go to really off-brand um, fast food places, that same sort of flaky white thing that you have fried is going to be a farmed tilapia. Okay. Yeah. And so, oh, I mean, so, those are on, you know, our supermarkets here. You can get. Yeah. So, you know, you it's, have, it's affordable. And yeah. I, you know, we, I eat it. It's yep. not bad. And and it's just like, you know, but that's the genuine, that that's where I go back to, you know, the way we've switched to farm mammals, right? Like once mm -hmm. upon a time, everybody was eating venison and Buffalo and stuff like that. But then we, focused in on a few things that we could farm. You asked earlier, are, is anyone farming cod? I did a story for the New York Times years ago where I went to Norway and to the Shetland Islands where they were experimenting farming cod. But actually what happened is that the wild cod stocks of Europe made a rebound and it was just financially not worth oh. it to farm cod. Plus the fact that you have a fish like a tilapia, which most Americans, if you were to bread and fry a tilapia and bread and fry a cod, most Americans wouldn't know the difference because right. it's just... Is just white fish. And in fact, when you look at commodities markets, there is this term white fish, which just means, you know, there is a true white fish of the Great Lakes, so there's freshwater fish, different fish altogether. But then there's just white colored flaky fish. Right. And into that slot, you have haddock, you have cod, you have pollock, you have tilapia, you have um, pangasius catfish from Vietnam. All that stuff can go down into the industrial pipeline and come mm. out as a fish stick. So I imagine 
trying to get dozens of countries on board, like globally. Well, let's just say the whole world. Like the United States, we are obviously very invested in trying to protect these fisheries. Some it's a day late and a dollar short, right? We, we waited too long, but I think we've yeah. learned from our mistakes. Yeah. Um, and when you talk, especially about the like third world countries, like they need, they need to make money. Yeah. Their citizens need to survive and they yeah. need to export this fish. Is overfishing more of a concern in those places than it is here? For sure. So, an interesting statistic. So the book that I wrote after Four Fish is called American Catch. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of playing on that, you know, we are in an American catch here. And the American catch is that the United States controls more ocean than almost any other. Yeah, and they're selling it to us by and large, right? I mean, that's the that is that's part of the catch. Like I've you know it's part of the catch. Um, I mean, that's part of the whole weird globalized kind of thing. Uh-huh. But we control more ocean than almost any country in the world. I think France owns a little more, controls a little more, but Tons and tons of oceans we control, ocean territory. Meanwhile, eighty to ninety percent of the of the fish that we eat is imported, and some of that is reimported stuff. Like a lot of Alaska salmon gets frozen whole, sent to China, defrosted, boned, and sent back to us double frozen. But a lot oh. of the fish that we're eating is just plain and simply cheap fish harvested with poor regulation from countries, as you say, that need the buck. And we're, you know, where we have clamped down on regulation, and we really do have some of the best managed fisheries in the world. One of the reasons we're able to enjoy that is that we're exploiting the loopholes of other countries and getting this cheap fish, often slave caught fish. Um, I often say, you know, people ask me, like, what should I eat? You know, what fish should I eat? And the the the, the shortest answer is eat American fish, because mm. if you're eating American caught fish, there's a really very good chance that it's coming from a sustainable fishery and not caught by a slave, you know, frankly, which I find, I don't know, have you followed the whole sea slave debate at all? No, I haven't. I mean, it's, it's horrible. I mean, there are instances of, you know, mostly comes out of these migrant situations where like in, I think um, in Myanmar, there was a popular, the Rohingya population was a huge migration and there was just, you know, surplus of people people are basically getting abducted and put on these fishing vessels for years where they would never see the land again. Um, And, and, you know, there's there's a bunch of good movies and writing about it. A guy named Ian Urbina has a whole series, has a book called The Outlaw Ocean that's worth reading into it. But the point is that if you're, you know, a a guy who has a small fishing company here in New York says, um, cheap fish isn't good and good fish isn't cheap. And if your chances are, if you're eating really cheap fish, it's probably got something wrong with it. Yeah. It's like, it's like blood diamonds. Yeah. It is like or, it's- uh, and this will be something we'll hit on this in a minute, but I will throw this out there. Cause I don't know how I don't, we're going to talk about your, your most recent work. And I don't know if you're going to tell me to go buy an electric vehicle, but I'm going to tell you, I know where the, the cobalt comes from. Sure. And it ain't sure. much different than what we're talking about with the cheap fish. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so it's been 13 years since Four Fish was published. Yep. How are we as humans doing when it comes to the sustainability of these these four specifically, these mm-hmm. four fish? Again, you know, in U.S. waters, we're doing better. Um, we've got good regulations in place. Um, we... Uh, the the fish that we can control, we're doing a good job. 
highly migratory fish like tuna, um, many tuna species, not all, but many tuna species cross the ocean um, and are managed by these international regulatory bodies called RFMOs, Regional Fisheries Management Organizations. And there's a different RFMO for every region of the world. Um, we in the Northeast are part of something called ICAT, which stands for the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. Mm -hmm. uh, a buddy of mine calls it the international conspiracy to catch all the tuna. Uh, <laughs> um, but those those international bodies, you know, they have scientific committees that make they they do stock assessments, they make recommendations, and then frequently their recommendations are completely ignored because there's a lot of political horse trading that goes on, you know, to determine who's going to get what. Um, so I would say the highly migratory fish are probably the most vulnerable at this point. Does Japan have a lot to do with that for their appetite they for do. sushi? They do, although, you know, it's funny, Japan doesn't do a lot of fishing anymore. It, it's They have like client nations that do the fishing for them. So oh. their hand in these international negotiations is much more often seen in trying to get little countries like Tuvalu, you know, or Palau to kind of endorse what that what would mean more tuna for Japan. So there's so a lot ex of exploiting the little guy again. Exploiting and listen, the United States is no um Saint. You know, prince in all this. Uh, you know, yeah. we we want to get as much tuna as we can too. And so sure. we, you know, it's a very like cold warty, cold warry, you know, kind of thing. Like we have this group of nations that's going to go on our side and they have their group of nations. And there's a lot of horse trading, a lot of jockeying for position. Back when I wrote for fish, um, you know, I wrote a lot about this process and um, was very critical of the way these international organizations manage themselves. And so actually we got real improvement on the way bluefin tuna are managed. Um, bluefin, as you probably know, they're, they spawn in the Eastern Mediterranean and they also spawn um, in the Gulf of Mexico mm -hmm. and, and the stocks intermix. So whatever goes on in, in the Mediterranean can have really big effects on the tuna that we see here. So that the exposure that I and frankly many other conservation writers did and exposed the degree to which those stocks were being overexploited led to better regulations, better controls in the Mediterranean. And as a result, we are starting to see an uptick in bluefin tuna. But for every bluefin success, there's a yellowfin or big eye failure. And mm. those kinds of things are going to be harder and harder to control. On the other hand, there's different things going on. There's AI, there's what are called vessel monitoring systems. Like it used to be possible to basically go dark as a fishing vessel and nobody could see you, but more and more vessels, if you're fishing, you're required to have what's called a vessel monitoring system device that's transmitting your location all the time. So potentially it, it's solvable. Mm, the idea of being able to go dark does seem pretty appealing with this uh, current administration big government trying to dictate every facet of our daily lives. But that's a conversation for another day. Uh, let's knock out a quick break. We'll come back, touch on Atlantic salmon and the climate diet, uh, your latest book. That segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. They put their money where their mouth is day in and day out. They have representation on Capitol Hill and are fighting for our rights as sportsmen and women nonstop. If you're not a member, I don't know why. Uh, for more information and to join our ranks, just head over to safariclub.org. Love to have you. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor just Show. As long as you call me your man, that's the only man I ever want. 
Land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over a hundred years. They'll do the same for you. If you're ready to take that next step and make the dream of owning your own land reality, then head over to LoneStarAgCredit.com. Hey guys, Cable here for Armasite. If you're looking to light up the night, whether that's with thermal or night vision, then you need to head over to armorsite.com. That's where you can find all of the thermal and night vision monoculars, uh, thermal weapon sights, and of course, night vision nods. Yeah, those cool-looking helmets, the one that I have. Yeah, buddy. You can find them over at armorsite.com. They've got it all right there. And even better than that, they've got some new stuff coming down the pike, like the 640 contractor. I've got the 320, 640, even better. You can find it all at armorsite.com. Yeah, when I look south and see the storm clouds roll On their way from old Mexico I don't want to be alone And the rays fly through my shiner bottle Make me want to turn the key and put down the throttle there's an all-time classic from Jason Bowler and the Stragglers somewhere down in Texas bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. I'm Cable Smith, and we've still got Paul Greenberg here with us, author of Four Fish and the Climate Diet, among other works. We'll pick it back up with Paul in just a second. The segment, though, is brought to you by Armasite and the brand spanking new 640 Contractor thermal weapon site. I just put one on uh, an AR-10. This thing is a pig-killing machine. Let me tell you, diverse color palette. The user interface is the most user-friendly. I've, I've seen it. I've used a lot of thermal scopes over the years, uh, but it's so simple that Cable can figure it out. Like, literally three shots to zero. Bam, 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 boom, ready to go hunting. Uh, internal recording as well. So many unique features. For more info, head over to Armasite. Com. You're going to love it. Uh, okay, let's wrap it up with Paul Greenberg, and uh, and let's talk um, Atlantic salmon. You know, we've we've hit on some of these species, cod, tuna, striped bass have touched a little on salmon, uh, but I don't I don't really know if the Atlantic salmon fishery is even viable anymore. Atlantic salmon, basically, in if you see Atlantic salmon, you can be sure it's farmed. It's now on the endangered species list. I think with warming waters, we're not going to see a revival of Atlantic salmon, not in my lifetime anyway. Um, and they probably are going to be close to complete extinction in the east. Civic salmon, we've had major failures in California um, in the southern part of their range. Uh, wild salmon are going to drift further and further north um, and probably colonize the northern rivers of Alaska. We did have a major win in that um uh, Bristol Bay, which is um, the largest wild salmon fishery in the United States, 50 to 60 million sockeye come into that system every year. Um, it was going to be uh, basically the site of a giant copper and gold mine, um, the spawning grounds were. And a coalition. Where was the pebble mine? That's pebble mine. Okay, yeah. So, okay. You know, and it's a coalition of fishermen and conservationists got together and, and basically stopped it cold. Um, mm -hmm. So that looks like we're finally going to get lasting protection for it and we should that was a huge deal it was Absolutely a huge deal. monumental it was a, it was a great it was a great win it was you know we talk about our you know left right differences but that was a case where left and right really kind of came together on it 
um, especially outdoorsmen. You know, oh, so, Donald Trump Jr. was posting about how this was a great day. You know, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Well, yeah. funnily enough, you know, I did an op-ed for the Times because he had he posted a picture of him and his son catching a Bristol Bay sockeye, and so I it, it put it on Instagram. And so I did an op-ed saying, you know, that's great. I'm glad you're catching this fish, but your father, meanwhile, has okayed a mine that would basically effectively destroy this fish. So from what I understand, that op-ed had a role in internally getting people within the administration, because in the end, the Trump administration actually stopped the Army Corps from permitting the mine. And now, you know, it's now we're going forward to a 404C Clean Water Act um, designation, hopefully, which would allow that watershed, you know, th there's a um, provision within the Clean Water Act, which allows if, if you have shellfish beds, spawning beds, et cetera, of national importance, you can overrule state level restrictions or state state level legislation and say, nope, this is a federal importance. And so that's effectively what's happened to the Bristol Bay watershed. Okay. Okay. Um, so Atlantic salmon, not, not great. That's that ship has sailed Pacific that ship has probably yeah. sailed, um, for many reasons. One, you know, huge dam dam situation. There's over, you know, there used to be salmon in Connecticut. There are 4,000 dams in the state of Connecticut. I often say this is why people in Connecticut are so uptight because their hmm. chi is blocked from all those dams. But there's dams all over the place. Um, you have um, Norway is um, I, I heard that the Vasa River, which is one of the most famous salmon rivers in Norway, something like 80 percent of the returns are coming are actually farmed salmon escapees. Hmm. So there's that going on. Um, were were Atlantic salmon populations in good shape? I don't think the farms actually really would have affected them that much. But the fact that so many rivers are dammed, that you do have oceanic conditions radically changing warming, that's a death knell to them, I think. Mm -hmm. um, well, switching gears just a little bit, you, you've written other books. One you alluded to, American Catch, um, also yep. the Omega Principle, yep. the latter of which makes me think that you're a proponent of, of consuming a lot of seafood. Yeah, I mean, so the Omega I love seafood. I mean, I'd eat it. It's probably one of my favorite things to eat. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter like what it is. Just give it to me. Me too. Me too. And you know, as part of that Omega Principle research, um, I went on an all fish diet where huh. I cut all land food meat out. How of are my... you still here? You didn't die from uh, mercury poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> I did have. Well, I'll tell you this: when when I had my blood tested uh, at the end of the experiment, because I also did it. There's a I did a PBS Frontline called "The mm -hmm. Fish on My Plate" that you know viewers can if you want to link to it. Um, where we did, we show the results, but at one point I happened to be in Alaska and I got my mercury numbers back and I, sh and there, we happened to be in a room with somebody from the state health, Alaska state health department. I said, what would you tell me if, if one, somebody from, you know, an Alaskan showed you these mercury numbers, what would you tell them? And he said, well, I'd probably send a rep out to your village and tell you to stop eating so much whale blubber. <laughs> <laughs> so like that's. I had very high mercury level, but it goes, you know, it went right back down once I went off of that. Um, and how long did you do that? For a year, for a okay. year. I was trying to, you know, like middle-aged guy, I was trying to see if I could address cholesterol and blood pressure issues. It didn't didn't work um, mm. at all. Actually, there was absolutely no change. What did work, and this could segue into discussing the climate diet, is I went vegan for a year. And when I went vegan for Gross. a year... <laughs> yeah, well, 
no, sorry. I I just, sometimes I have this thing where I don't have a filter. I apologize. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You know, listen, I'm a science reporter. I have to try all <laughs> avenues. Um, but like my LDL cholesterol on a vegan diet went from like 170 to like 120. Uh-huh. My blood pressure went down about 10 points. You know, I'm not a vegan now. Um, I'm vegan. I actually try to eat, be mostly plant related at home and I eat meat when I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I don't know, I felt I actually came to like it. I felt like I keep kept weight off a little bit more when yeah. I was on a vegan diet. Um, but anyway, that's all I was saying. The climate diet, the, the um, the is about. Oh, b- hey, before you get into this one though, there's yeah. one other one that really seemed interesting to me, and I I I didn't write the name of it down, but it was like disconnecting with your turn your phone off and reconnecting oh, with yeah, nature. Yeah. That's just. Funny. Just like give us just, okay, so goodbye phone, okay. hello world. Haven't read that, but just the title yeah. alone makes me the, want to hand it to my son and say, read this. You know? <laughs> yeah, no. So I actually use a flip phone. I got rid of my iPhone. Um, sort of, it's sort of like my veganism in that I use, I do have a reserve iPhone for when I'm reporting and I'm out in the field and I need to figure out where to get around. But most of the time, I find ninety eight percent of what comes through on an iPhone to be highly annoying, mm. and I really just don't want to have any part of it. Yeah. Um, th- th- this book, I actually, I talked to a lot of people, you know, spiritual leaders, um, educators, all different people. And, and frankly, a lot of them, people who just like to be out in the, in the wild, like, I mean, don't you find it like upsetting when you take your kids and you go fishing or hunting or whatever. And it's like the freaking phone is like, you know, look, they're not that old yet, but I'm, we're fighting this battle right now. My son just got. His, his uncle just gave him his old Xbox, which upgraded from the Xbox I had when I got married. And now yeah. he's like, Fortnite, Dad, Fortnite. And we didn't even let him play Fortnite at his friend's house. But now he's played yeah. it. We're like, okay, you're 10. You can play. You're finally allowed to play shoot. I mean, he's killing deer. Why am I not letting him play a shooting game? Right. Yeah, but there's it's... different varying degrees. I, I played a game and, and just to see what it was like and make sure there's not a lot of blood and like that it wasn't extremely violent. Um, but once he got a taste of it, He's like, oh, I got to, you know, and then he turns into a little a-hole. If you tell him he can't play, I know. I'm like, you know what? Go outside and shoot baskets <laughs> for an hour. Get your equilibrium back. But let's yeah. let's go to the little, little pond down the road and let's go fishing. And then we're going to reset and calm down. And you're not going to tell me, you know, about how much you need to play Fortnite anymore. That's right. Well, how mm-hmm. old is he? He's 10. Yeah, so like, um, we can't. I, 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 I see kids that are two that are addicted. Like, Absolutely. hey, they, the parents take the kid out to eat. They don't want to listen to the kid cry. Here, here here's an iPad. Absolutely. It's terrible. We, we kept my son off of the phone until high school. Uh huh. And I'm really glad we did. You didn't um, have a phone now, but did your son play video games? No, we don't have, we don't have, I mean, at friends' house, but we never have, sure. we never got a console nice. here. And, um, He's every bit as addicted now as any kid is in high school, um, mostly because he's just <laughs> get a girlfriend. Right. <laughs> but no, but I mean, I do think there's nobody old, younger than high school age needs an iPhone. I mean, that's your choice. Agree. You yeah. Um, and it's just really it's very alienating from nature. And, you know, the problem is I, I did a, an op ed, I think. I think it was maybe for AARP or something. And it was just about like how the problem is you will always be outspent by these tech companies in terms yeah. of, you know, every hurdle you create to stop your kids from getting on this stuff, they've already researched the hell out of, and they're going to figure out a way to get to your child. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's, it's problematic. Let's, let's talk real quickly about the climate 
Diet. This is your latest yeah. piece, and it's about reducing your carbon footprint. I'll be honest, I'm not really into the whole climate change narrative being pushed by the media and certainly the Biden administration. Yeah. You know, is the climate changing? Yes, I think we can all agree. But the climate has always changed. In the 70s, they said, we're going to freeze to death. Nobody froze to death. Now the experts are saying, you know, uh, the the polar ice caps are melting, blah, blah, blah. I'm not disputing that, but I say that, yes, the climate's always changing. Now, I say that with a concession that we should actively be invested in trying to lessen our carbon footprint, trying as sportsmen and, and just human beings, like not to pollute this one planet that we have. That's right. Um, so where does the climate diet fall into this discussion? And I think it's like 50 things you can do in your daily life. Too. Yeah, I mean, you know, to me, a lot of it is about simplifying our lives and trying to, as you say, live more in harmony with the planet that we love. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I, I hate wasting food. Um, yeah. I hate wasting anything, really. Um, so and in fact, actually, like my one of the one of the things I really push really heavily in the climate diet is composting. Because actually food waste, when you throw it into a landfill, it's one of the biggest emitters of methane, um, which is even more potent as a sort of, you know, lid on the on the, on the pot as far as yeah. keeping it into the planet. So very briefly, the climate diet just, you know, there's a part on food, there's a part on driving, there's a part on, uh, you know, managing your home. Uh, there's a part about money and money management. Um, tries to give you ideas about how to kind of simplify your life. And, you know, I think we can agree to disagree on this. I actually think there are quite a few indicators that make it an exceptional moment that we're having with respect um, to climate change. And I do see a causal effect between one and the other, but we don't have time to go into that. But I think everyone. Well, let me agree. ask you, let me ask you one thing about electric yeah. vehicles, because that's like yeah. the, this administration. That's where I have a problem with this administration. Like, we all got to drive these electric vehicles. Well, we don't have the power grid to support it. And uh, the electricity is generated by coal and fossil fuels. And then, like I was telling you about the Congo, uh, where you got to have this cobalt combined with the lithium to make these batteries. Dude, that's, you were talking about slave labor on boats. Like, have you seen what's going on in these? They call them artisanal mines. Sounds real cute. It's actually, here's your 50 cents for the day. Go down here and try not to die. Listen, I agree with you. I think there's all sorts of problems with electric vehicles. Frankly, my problem is with vehicles and with roads and okay. with... Um, the degree to which we've overbuilt our system of, you know, of paving over the the world. And I think you as a hunter know that when you have highways everywhere and, you know, all sorts of ways that disconnect, you know that wildlife needs to migrate, needs to be able to you have You know what work. I hate? I hate looking at these big windmills on my deer lease that are on the next over. I absolutely hate it. I hate it. Infrastructure, big infrastructure of any kind is, is problematic for nature. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, to, to close out because we could have a whole other hour. And if you want, we can do that. <laughs> um, it's just that, you know, you're absolutely right. We have this one planet, this one beautiful planet that is still has abundant nature that can feed us, that can enrich our spirits and that our primary, you know, objective going forward is to how can we have balance with the natural world that we love? Well, I have, like I said, I haven't read it. I am going to check out the uh, climate diet. Yeah. Um, so maybe we will have another conversation on that. All right, you can educate good. us more. Uh, check Table. out Four Fish if you haven't. Again, Paul, thanks so much for your time, my friend. A big yeah. fan of your works, the ones that I've read, and uh, I yeah. look forward to reading this one. Thanks, Cable. Great to, that you're getting these good messages out into the world. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye.
So there you have it, Paul Greenberg, author of Four Fish, The Climate Diet, and uh, various other works. Interesting conversation today. Uh, I certainly <laughs> thought so. Some things I'd never thought about, and then just being educated on these uh, these fisheries that we depend on uh, as far as you know, cod, salmon, tuna, and bass. Huh. Good stuff. I learned something. Hope you all did as well. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Paul. Thanks to you guys and gals for being a part of today's presentation. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. situations I-